Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist, author, investor, and serial entrepreneur. Join me as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship, trends, or the future of work. On the show, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. In episode 124 of the podcast, the topic is cultural agility. Our guest is Paula Caliguri, Damore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University, author of Build Your Cultural Agility, The Nine Competencies of Successful Global Professionals. In this conversation, we talk about remote cultural agility in a globalized world during COVID-19. How do you acquire cultural agility? How does it translate to the online world or to the hybrid future of work? There are lessons for both expatriate management, global leadership development, and self If you're new to the show, seek particular topics, or you are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurize.org slash episodes. They are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. That'll help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic they are familiar with or want to go deeper in. The host of this podcast, Trunarne Unheim, PhD, is the author of Health Tech Rebooting Societies, Software, Hardware, and Mindset, published by Rutledge in 2021, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, published by Kogan Page in 2021, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, and Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, both published by Atmosphere Press. Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace by Lulu Press in 2008. For an overview, go to Tronsbooks at trondentime.com books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. To check them out, go to futurize.org sponsors. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by the host of this podcast, including how to book in for keynote speeches, please go to futurize.org store. We will consider all brands that have a demonstrably positive contribution to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurize.org, where you can find hundreds of conversations with episodes that matter to the future. I hope you can also leave a positive review on iTunes or in your favorite podcast player. It really matters to the future of this podcast. Thanks so much. Let's begin. Paula, how are you today? I'm fine, Tron. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be talking about a topic that uh, a lot of people seem to think they know a lot about. So there's something about culture where there's this instant recognition and similar to some other topics. Uh, 
Have you ever experienced this when you talk about your expertise? We will get into what all of that is about, but it's just something interesting about culture. Everyone natively thinks they're an expert. Isn't that a little frustrating? <laughs> oh, they, not only is that so true, but not only do they think they're an expert, but it's the one competency that everyone always ends up kind of being the worst at. So it's while we think we're really good at it, we're actually not. <laughs> well, I wanted to bring that up because you know, you clearly, you're an academic, you are, uh, you know, you work at Northeastern University, you're a consultant on these matters, you've written a book, which we'll talk about, I even brought it for, you know, for people who are listening to the, uh, you know, watching it, um, you know, build your cultural agility. And um, it seems like you're a psychologist from, you know, by training, uh, industrial psychology, Penn State, You've obviously, uh, reached, you're reaching a big audience with your messages. I wanted maybe to just take this back a, a step and, and think about why is it that you chose this field? I'm just curious. <laughs> I, I wish I had this great, elegant story. Unfortunately, it's really kind of boring. I, I was studying abroad in, in 1987. I'm, I'm American. I was studying in Rome, Italy. But unfortunately for me, it was the fall of 1987 when black market, the market crash, and the money I had saved to have the experience ended up being worth nothing. So back then, the only kids who really studied abroad were wealthy kids. I wasn't one of them. So when I called my mom and dad, they said, they said, honey, go get a job. So, so I ended up, while all the other kids, all the other American kids were running around Europe traveling, I was staying in Rome, working, um, spending time with my relatives in Southern Italy. When I returned after that semester abroad, I went home, went back to um, my hometown, finished college. But my psychology professors noticed I was, I was sad, I was depressed, I was moping. I, I, and they said, Paula, if that had such a profound effect on your experience while you were abroad, you know, if you feel so different, if your identity has changed, why don't you study it? The joke is that in 1988, I wrote, it wasn't a joke, but I wrote on my application, I want to study what makes people effective living and working internationally, and I want to know how they change from deep developmental cross-cultural experiences. So what are we, 30-something years later, I'm still studying what makes people effective living and working internationally and how they change from deep developmental cross-cultural experiences. So I've been doing this for a long time, um, and indeed, I did do the PhD in psychology. I, I love that story because, you know, so often you sort of, uh, you hear that everyone has a story why, why they're doing what they're doing, especially if they're passionate and, and good, good at it, right? Um, but it, it started fairly early for you and it's, it seems like a natural fit to kind of what you were both interested in personally and then now professionally. I find that um, it helps a lot, right? When you like what you do. Oh, it, it, it definitely. And also think about timing. It was right at the start of the era of globalization. We were just starting to build our understanding of, of this issue. And so it, it was it was good timing as well. Well, I think we have a common, uh, you know, love for Italy. What was it like to, to live in Rome as a, I guess, an expat Italian? You are of Italian descent. Did you feel like you were kind of coming back to your roots? Were you able to, to learn some Italian and, and get, uh, you know, under the culture that way? There's such interesting phenomenon about people who kind of look the part. I mean, my mom and dad are both from Southern Italy. So my, my blood, my, my look, my whatever. But I was socialized 100% as an American. So even though I kind of looked like I should fit in, 
I actually didn't. There were so many cultural things that I was tripping over. What's fascinating is that as the research ends up bearing out, it's tougher for people who look like they should be doing doing the it, doing doing the correct behaviors. It's a little tougher for them because there's the expectation that they should be getting it right. So if I was, you know, in Rome, if I was very tall, I'm not, <laughs> for those of you who are listening, blonde, I'm not, um, you know, there would be this perception that I probably am not someone who, who should know what I'm doing. So it was really, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy that's played out in the, uh, in the literature as well. Well, well, let's get into the literature. So cultural agility, what, what kind of a topic is that? Uh, as I alluded to, it sort of intuitively sounds like we all have it because we all have a culture and we all, you know, especially in the U.S., you sort of think, well, you know, you are exposed to all these cultures, you know, it's a melting pot, whatever metaphor you want to use. We know this stuff. We, you know, I've met different people, but clearly the debates of the last few years have perhaps shown that that there's a bit, little bit of a crack there. How has this topic of cultural agility evolved? So you have tracked it for for a bunch of time, and I'm sure you know this is kind of your definition of it. What what are the distinctions? What are the things that uh, that goes into this concept, sort of I- I- intuitively? Right. So so let me, let me give you my version of the definition, and then I'll answer the. So it's it's for me cultural agility is the ability to comfortably and effectively work in different cultural contexts and with people's cultures. The evolution that, that you asked about, I think is fascinating because what began is really sort of the, the let's talk about, you know, what it is, it's like to be an American working in Italy or, you know, an Italian working in South Africa, whatever. It, it's now very much the issue of, okay, whoa, there's a lot of socializing agents in our cosmopolitan reality that have affected the value structure that we have. So if you imagine, you know, as I joked about, you know, being sort of of Italian heritage, which doesn't make me, you know, I've been socialized a little bit in in an Italian household, but I've been socialized as an American. I've been socialized as a female. I've been socialized, I'm I'm 53 years old. I've been socialized into Gen X. I've been socialized. We can keep, we can keep layering on those different cultural socializing agents. And that kind of affects how we see and view the world. You mentioned the past two years and sort of the, the, the reality. I think what we're, we're finally starting to have the conversation about is that all those years of socialization, you know, basically fix how our eyeballs perceive the reality in front of us. I'm not a fan of unconscious bias training, but what it's introduced everyone to is the fact that everyone has a limbic system and we process the world, every subjective reality in terms of the data that we've stored. So I think it's been fascinating sort of watching it um, become more refined over time. So when I studied at university, uh, cultural understanding or whatever the course was called was one of the most popular courses because it was viewed as, I guess, a more advanced type of tourism, I think, because that's the only way I can explain why it was that popular. It was sort of like pop anthropology. You know, it was like in one book, in this case, you could get just three, 400 pages, whatever it was, a long book, but it was, you know, you could get exposed to all these cultures and you could just understand how to act when you're visiting or doing business, you know, in all these, you know, European and Asian countries in this case. But 
expatriate management seems to be one of it. So you, you, you're also concerned about kind of the leadership consequences. And, and I think today with COVID, uh, part of the debate is also about remote work and sensitivity. You write about that in your book, which we'll get to. Um, because the cultural codes don't always work that same, or, or it seems to be hard to uh, be sensitive enough to cultural codes online. It's a, it seems a little bit of a different game. Um, as we're getting into your book, so cultural agility, building a pipeline of successful global professionals. How how did that come about? Was that is this kind of like culmination of a lot of your academic work? Um, and you know what is how would you sort of introduce the main competencies? There's nine of them you you outline to be successful as a global professional these days. Right. Yeah. So the, the book you just named, it was actually the previous book, but that one was written to leaders who have to build that competency in the workforce. Like who are you bringing in? Who are you training? How are you training them? Um, how are you developing them? And the like. So it's full pipeline. The, the competencies are a little bit different. It, it's sort of like taking that class you took back at the university and saying, yes, uh-huh, we get it. That's important. So it's important to understand how generations differ or how countries differ or how whatever differs, because if you don't sort of have that flag that there might be a difference, all you're going to do is keep ignoring and perceiving the difference to be um, negative. So, so let's, let's kind of say that's one half of the cultural agility piece, but it's that there's, it's kind of overworn. The other half of the cultural agility piece are those nine competencies. And those nine competencies. Hey, I see. I was conflating the two books. Yeah, in, that you. Were no, it's okay because topic, they, yeah. they work hand in glove. So the one book was was is really about hey companies, this is really important to think about. Move into your you know have this competency built into the people who are especially leading your organization. The other book is that we'll, we'll you know talk about those competencies. How do you build it in yourselves for professional success? So yeah, there's nine of these critical competencies. We can talk about them however you'd like. Yeah, because uh, there, there's three more, more like self-management type things. So th they're interesting because I don't know how much they can be influenced, at least the first one, sort of tolerance of ambiguity. I mean, can that really be trained? Yeah, it's, it's always a very interesting question. You think about um, every single competency as having a recipe, and the recipe has certain ingredients that will mix and match kind of depending on who the person is. So in every one of these competencies, one of the ingredients is kind of the genetic hardwiring, your relatively immutable dispositional trait, how your body handles serotonin and dopamine. So in the case you mentioned tolerance of ambiguity. So for people who have a very high tolerance of ambiguity, they can handle all kinds of new novel circumstances without their body kicking out, you know, okay, too stressful, too stressful, too much, and then then kind of clamping down. Because as soon as your body clamps down and says, no, 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 this is too much, this is too much, you're you're you automatically seek comfort and you kind of move to um, ease, you know, something that's emotionally easy or cognitively easy. So that's a so that there's a hard wiring component of that, but. You also can see that, you know, the joke about, you know, you know, stretching your norms. If you're not, if you're, if you're not a little uncomfortable, you're, <laughs> you're not trying hard enough. The idea that everyone starts somewhere in terms of their natural ambiguity, and they can continually build it out and build it out and build it out until they, their, their tolerance of ambiguity actually expands. But it takes a lot of self-awareness. 
both of, you know, kind of where your start point is so that you're not giving yourself too much ambiguity. And then um, that idea that you can also give yourself those stepped up experiences. Some great research in that. It, right. Well, I, I, let, if we just handle that first one, right? I mean, I would say, if you ask me, I've lived in many different cultures and I've had a lot of different exposure, but I would say I have realized more and more how much of a rookie I am in all of the things that you describe because you never kind of learn this. And you, you know, certainly I make all kinds of mistakes all the time when it comes to, uh, I guess, thinking that I have understood what what all of these factors are gonna are gonna do when I'm faced with with uh, n- new realities, and it doesn't always have to do even with culture. I guess that's what the fascinating thing about your book is that I find that a lo- when I was reading it, you know, I was thinking about anything but culture. In fact, like sometimes, right, the ambiguity it has to do with learning, and it has to do with, and then your second one of the self management curiosity, right? I, I think of myself as fairly curious, but when I was reading your examples, I realized this is kind of a program for lifelong learning that you're setting out <laughs> here. You can never be curious enough in yeah. a certain sense. Right, right. Now, that, that's exactly the point of the book is to say, we, we ex- you know, you started at the beginning saying everybody thinks they're good at this. Absolutely. Everyone thinks they're good at this. It's usually when something goes wrong, that's when they realize, okay, I have, I have something to learn here. Um, and, and that's where the competency piece definitely we can build them. Each of these competencies can be built. What about the resilience piece, the third piece? How, so that sounds uh, very relevant these days, right? Resilience right. is something you need, especially if there's uncertainty and if things start to happen that you cannot control. Surely you must have been asked about this many, many times, whether it's COVID or I guess the the, the lack of, of, of cultural exposure. <laughs> People have had the, a lack of exposure. Um, how do you build resilience? What's what's the trick there? Right. So again, every competency has a recipe that's t- discussed in the book. The, the, um, this one for resilience, if you think about it to over, like, oversimplify it a little bit, the, is how our bodies in this case handle serotonin. So that goal-directed optimism, that ability when you kind of make a mistake, do you just crumble under the weight of it? Or is it, you know, say, no, it's okay. No, try again. Who cares? You know, it doesn't really matter. Like, so some people just naturally can roll with it and others. But then there's the, the part that you can learn, the part that you can develop. Every competency has is a part that's hardwired and a part you can develop. The part you can develop in this case is coping strategies. So coping strategies can focus on problems. You can focus on symptoms. Um, and they both have their place. But you can, you can kind of continually build up stepped-up understanding of a great coping strategy at the root of the problem, asking questions, advice from people you trust, having people you trust kind of who understand the challenges you're going through. Symptom focus can be positive or negative. So it could be, you know, life has become really stressful. So, you know, like a COVID, you can use that example. You know, so that a negative one would be, oh, I'm just going to, you know, drink a bottle of wine every night to kind of cope with this. That's pretty negative. Or I could start a meditation practice, be positive. Neither of those are going to make COVID go away. But both, in both cases, there's, um, there's some placating symptoms. In one of those cases, it's positive. So we can, we can continually almost build that repertoire of coping strategies in order to build out our 
What about the second uh, set of competencies, which have to do more with relationship and relationship management? You know, again, like you can think of any relationship, but but especially, I guess, in un- intercultural uh, dialogue or, or you know, simply, honestly, in everybody's regular workplace, most uh, you know, most times they they will find themselves working with people from very different backgrounds, or certainly socioeconomically. You know, there's always ways to to discover that you know you you're not as similar to people deep down as you sort of initially think you are you may be in one culture but you're from a different culture in some important respect you talk about humility in that in that regard what what is that all about the humility is interesting because i think a lot of people have given humility a bad a bad name like humility means you're sort of believing you're not as good as everyone else. And, and that's not, yeah, it's not a big American kind of traditional <laughs> value, I guess. <laughs> well, let me, let me just abuse that. No, we definitely want, in this case, humility. We want to think about it as um, the, the, we're understanding the power of the situation you're in, in order for you to be effective. So too many people say, okay, I'm really good at accounting or finance or journalism or medicine or whatever. I'm going to go into name the situation and therefore be effective without saying, okay, I need the humility to be able to say to the environment, to the situation, to the people in it, you know what? I'm really good at accounting or finance or journalism or medicine, but I don't know how to be effective here. So help me understand the best ways to um, shape what I do and how I do it so that I can effective here you know it's really it's really an interesting competency because it also has a component of what you feel the humility you feel and the humility you express um in this case how you express humility also varies from country to country or culture or generation to generation so um there's there's some different there's nuances there as well but humility also seems to me like has become a branding competency. Like it, there's, there's actually great value in pretending to be humble also in the workplace. So I, I think I've seen both. How do you, how do you keep the sincerity when you are sharing? Because I, I have seen this as a management trick as well to kind of d- display some sort of humility, but in reality, it's actually a strategy. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Because you're kind of also playing on the card of, you know, I'm vulnerable and I haven't understood everything. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of us think that we have understood a lot, a lot of things. So I just wanted to see if you have come across that, that humility is also something that can be performed, I guess, in a certain way. Well, in the case of, of just kind of national cultural differences, you do have to come across in different ways to demonstrate humility. For example, if you, if you use sort of, kind of an egalitarian sense of humility, like, oh, you all know better than I do. What would I, you know, what do you think I should yeah, do? That'll that's come, what I'm, I'm that'll come across um, quite negatively in hierarchical. You're supposed to be the leader acting the leader. So you have to do it in a, in a far more subtle way. You have to mm-hmm. ask, you know, a more slightly more powerful questions to better understand the nature. So, so the humility, in a sense, is being given to the context as opposed to being automatically around you. You're just saying, "Look, I, I need to learn something about the context." How you learn about it, though, is you know will vary depending on the. Context. 
I don't know if that answered your well, question. We've talked about culture without, yeah, no, it does. We've talked about culture without sort of defining it. I, I, I recognize that in your book, you speak, uh, you, you, you kind of use some of uh, Gerd Hofstede's uh, kind of distinctions when he talks about kind of a shame culture. You know, he has all these distinctions, uh, kind of these different continuums that, that a culture operates on. How, how fixed are those categories? It seems to me that that was sort of created in a given moment, right? When he sort of like was describing these cultures, but aren't cultures actually evolving things? It's not like, you know, being an American means the same that it did 50 years ago. So I'm just curious, as we're thinking about culture, how do you take into account, like, wait a second, you know, I'm using a, a cultural lens here that I was taught 30 years ago. Maybe it doesn't fit anymore. How no, does it's, that come it's into true play? Because there's, the, you know, it's, it's not the slow evolution of, you know, societies that barely speak to each other. I mean, years of, you know, hundreds of years ago, our, our grandparents couldn't speak to each other, right? So, so now there's much more um, homogeneity of, of kind of that, especially among the co cosmopolitan culture. So that's what, when I mentioned that we have to really respect the idea that there are layers of socializing agents in, our, in any of our lives They create the cultures, the cultural values that we espouse, um, and that you know, to Americans, Germans, Italians, South Africans, the country could have vastly different cultural values, you know, and they could be you know, they could be of the same generation and raised next door to one another. It's it's um, it very much depends on the, the socializing agents in their life. What we do tend to see though is that there are some. Um, trajectories that are maintaining even in today's cosmopolitan reality. But but it's worth it's worth having a conversation. When when I so we have an app that is available through the book, but you don't need to go on the book to use the app. It's a free app. You can assess your own cultural values and we really do speak about them as your own cultural values. So just because you are American doesn't mean you're gonna have certain cultural values, you have your own. So you assess them and then you compare them to others. So we, res we respect- Has that been surprising? Them. So have you talked to a lot of people about that that have tested your app? Do, does that give you surprises sometimes when you're kind of indexing your own cultural values? Do people know uh, intuitively what their values turn out to be? You know, there's some- Like do we have an awareness of our own, how we come across? Um, I think once they see the graphic, And they start thinking about and reflecting on their own lives, how they were socialized growing up, through adulthood, whatever. Um, it starts to make sense. So, so we always do the exercise of, you know, compare your own values to compare them to your own country. So, so if, if I'm American, I'm going to compare my default values to, to those of an American. For example, I t Americans tend to test out or tend to be much more individualistic. I tend to be much more collectivistic. Where did that come from? Oh, well, my family structure, the focus on family, my dispositional, you know, like there are all these things that layered on that made me different from my, from my default culture values. Um, so that's always an interesting exercise, helping people sort of think about their own socializing agents and what makes them. It, it provides a lot of self-awareness and then getting them to think about, well, everybody kind of is that way as well. So that's when you meet someone from another culture, just because 
they're of that culture doesn't mean they have the textbook values, such as the ones you described. Hmm. The third aspect you focus on is task management. So I take that to mean that that's kind of like your action-oriented repertoire, basically, you know, adaptation and, and how you kind of integrate in cultures, which I guess matches a lot more to what the traditional, the book that I was talking about was more about that, I guess, you know, it's like, how do you adapt to a culture, that kind of thing. Um, so how does that translate in, in, you know, in your lens? What, what does it mean to adapt to a culture and, and to integrate? And, and is it even kind of a goal? I mean, do we have to do this to, to either to work as a professional or, or indeed to kind of fit into a culture? Do you need to adapt? And to what degree should you kind of adapt versus sort of keep your own, just keep your own culture, I guess, and sort of tolerate it? So what is this adaption about? This bucket of competencies is so different from the first two. So self-management competencies, having more of them is better. With the relationship management competencies, having more of them is better. With these task management competencies, not true. <laughs> it, it really depends on, on the situation you're in. What we found in, in the research and in my consulting is that the people who are, who are the most culturally agile, they have almost like a repertoire of ways to respond in a cultural context. Some, sometimes everybody talks about ad, ad, adapting, about learning the rules of the road, following the rules, doing exactly what everybody else is doing and fitting in. That's useful sometimes. It's useful in sales, it's useful in marketing. If you're doing government relations, it's useful. You know, it's useful in certain circumstances. It's useful if you wanna do you know, one-on-one trust building with someone from another. But there's two others. Sometimes it's completely the opposite. It's cultural minimization, which is really saying, okay, we, and I'm going to say it in a kind of a crass way, but I don't care what the culture is here. Here's how it has to happen. So it could be safety protocol. It could be ethics. It could be a production schedule. You know, there's lots of things in, um, it could be fair fair and equal treatment of um, colleagues. It could be level of respect within the organization. It could be whatever the, the company has deemed to be kind of the non-negotiable around the world. Um, and, and there, the, 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 in this case, a leader's role is to persuade, motivate, model, do whatever you have to do in order to essentially change the culture <laughs> to the one that you're, that you're espousing. And then that third is that integration. And that's saying, look, it's not going to be my way. It's not going to be your way. We're going to create a brand new culture that reflects only our team or only our unit or only, and we might represent lots of different national cultures socialized in lots of different ways, but we're going to bring a different set of norms when we're operating. And what we find sort of the, the tie these, how these all tie together is that the best global professionals, the most culturally agile professionals, they toggle across these and they can pull them out when they need to have the skills to do it. Look, it's fascinating. The stuff you talk about, right? It's used to be called in kind of, I think, old parlance is like soft competencies. But it strikes me that in the world we're living in, not the world we, even the one we're moving into, this is not even optional, right? And it's not very soft either. I mean, there's stuff to learn, there's stuff to do. You, you can't really survive, it seems to me, as a global professional without at least some level of acuity and agility in this domain. Wouldn't you say? I, I would agree wholeheartedly. I mean, the whole concept of the, the VUCA world, the US, that's our current and ongoing reality. 
you know, I think individuals need some agility, cultural agility to manage with it. It's non-negotiable. Hmm. Right. So you have a startup in this, and I, uh, I don't know, uh, do you pronounce it Skillify? Yes, Skillify. Mm-hmm. S- yeah, Skillify. How 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 is that? Like, so you do trainings, corporate trainings. I'm I'm taking. Is that is that the business model here? Correct. We do. So so Skillify actually, believe it or not, is a, is a public benefit corporation, meaning that um, we give quite a bit of things, quite a few tools away for free. And that's why I mentioned that there's a tool called My Guide. Your, your listeners are interested. It's M Y G I D E. Um, you can go on and assess your cultural values, that tool I mentioned. You could also go on and assess your cultural competencies and, and learn some development opportunities, developmental tricks to help build those competencies. And all of that is is free. So we, we're beginning with uh, giving things away. And you're doing that with uh, Andy Palmer. Uh, I see he's uh, a, a founder. So you have a... Yes. Did yes. The two of you who are doing this together. Yes. Starting to build out the team, which has been wonderful. Really great. Team. Got it. Um, I, I promised, uh, or I, I did say that I was interested in this, in, in how the remote aspect works. Uh, can you give some commentary on this new remote world we're living in where, well, for a year, everything was remote. How does that affect all of these strategies that you were describing? And what is sort of the recipe to survive as a culturally competent person in an online work setting where you, I mean, many of us, right? We started a job, have never met our employer. We've never met the team we worked with. And maybe just now we're starting to meet them. How has this affected uh, culture? That's a really, that's a lot. There's a lot in motion there. Um, So, so Start with my concern, and that is that throughout this past almost year and a half, that this move to everything being online, my fear is that the people assume that the tech makes the culture part go away. And in fact, the tech, if your only if your only basis of understanding and gaining trust and building credibility and communicating with somebody from another culture is through a small screen, there's lots of cultural cues, things that can be misinterpreted, and and I just give I'll give you some really some of them might sound silly, but they're powerful. Um, we mentioned level of formality. I once was on a call with somebody who just had gone for she was American. She had gone for a swim, put a towel around her hair was wet, and she had a bathing suit on, which is for American. Eh, she's being efficient, right? But we were on the call with some people who are from more formal cultures that came off very negatively. Um, you know, if you're from, uh, if you, you know, the, the social distance that we use, I know this is a, a podcast for some of your audience, so I won't try to do it to you. But, you know, if you go really close to the camera versus very far, far away, it sort of creates that visual distance. If you're too close, it actually gives off your limbic processor some perception that's invading your space. There's this long list of these things that can go wrong just, and you haven't left your kitchen or your <laughs> wherever your your home office, um, so I you know th- there's sort of that 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 kind of high level issue. But you also asked about the org culture, 
And there too, if your organization had an extremely strong organizational culture and they, they, and, and at the onset of COVID, there was a conversation about how do we maintain and perpetuate our culture throughout this, whether through messaging, patients, through whatever, then while your culture may have weakened, it didn't disappear. My concern is for organ, organizational cultures that weren't particularly strong or consistent to begin with. They were a little loose, a little weak. And now kind of everybody is sort of interacting and doing the way they feel is best using lens, for them, their culture has dissolved. And if they stay permanently within this kind of virtual space and don't return to an office, um, there's going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to compete on organizational culture. So, th- so there's, there, are two, there are two important issues related to technology, quite, quite different, but both important. Yeah, and they're not very new. I mean, I, I for one, have worked from home for the last 15 years. And I, you know, I worked in a big tech company once and I would say, I mean, I, I did had met my employer, but, you know, on a daily basis, I had much more, and this is, I think is normal in the tech sector, you have much more contact with even just competitors or the market or whoever you're spending your time on, whether you're in sales or otherwise, if you have an external facing role, um, and you don't go into the office, or even if you do go to the office, you don't spend a lot of time with your own colleagues because that's not what you're hired to do, right. right? That's not even what you're paid to do. So there is this cultural issue, no matter how you spin it, where uh, you got to be pretty efficient uh, at being cultural or, uh, you know, or, be, or being sharing or whatever it is, the kind of activity you need to do in order to actually appropriate the the kind of company culture, because if you don't have this everyday discipline of going into the office, how do you even know what the company culture is supposed to be? So I think you're right. There's going to be a kind of a reckoning for a lot of companies about what are our values and how do we keep them, right? And how that, you know, now that things are different. It Um, is. That's going to be so critical. and And I can guarantee that when we start going back to offices, Companies are going to be shocked. For those that had weak cultures to begin with, would be shocked to learn how little of their organization. You know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, would that mean like you think some people will also just come back, like the way you would come back after a, I don't know, like some horrible long vacation where you're like taking a break and come back and say, you know, I don't like my life and then quit your job or whatnot. I mean, is, is that the kind of reaction you could have as well, where you go back and you're like, well, why was I ever working here? This doesn't work for me. It, it, it could be. Um, the past year and a half have given a lot of people an opportunity to reprioritize some self-awareness. And in those, among those individuals, if they walk back into an organization that is consistent with their values, they have one of two choices. You either adapt to the context adapt your behaviors, or you find one organization that will align more closely. So, so it could be the case. I, I know I've been seeing some reports out that there's one organizations that they, as soon as the, the market opens up again and the world opens up again, that, that there will be a lot of yet to be determined. Well, if we look even longer term, you know, looking at the next decade, these you've studied this for for years. Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen in this space? So COVID is one thing. 
Um, but there's other forces, right? Technology is evolving also, you know, and perhaps technology plus COVID, right? It's going to make this remote situation perhaps not just more bearable, but but also better, perhaps. But what do you think culture as a factor? You know, what, what, what is it a constant kind of worry and opportunity uh, to to focus on, or what's happening in this field of adapting to different sort of work cultures? Let's just take like organizational culture. How do you see this topic evolve in the workplace? I think there's going to be much more of a focus on how organizations compete on culture, how they use their their organizational culture, how they create it, how they sustain it, how they model it, how they share it, how they transfer it from senior members down to junior members, how they reward it, how they punish it, you know, how, how do you, who you bring in, who you exit out of your organization in terms of alignment with culture and the extent to which um, they compete on that and perhaps vary that that they're in. I think there's going to be much more of a, a conversation around organizations that compete on a unified culture around the world or organizations that really do because they're they're gearing to customer taste and preferences that do maybe adapt culture to fit local norms. I think there's going to be a really interesting conversation about, I mean, there's always been a conversation about organizational culture as a, as a uh, strategic asset, but in terms of, you know, how that's leveraged around the world and how that's to this new more virtual environment. Well, to that point, I just was wanted to benefit from your expertise to ask you about technology in that context, because in many other realms of organizational behavior, but also sort of, you know, in terms of productivity of an organization, then technology comes in and, and kind of makes certain processes more, more efficient. In, in the domain of culture, so, you know, you yourself have developed a battery of questions and, you know, in psychology, the, sort of the psychometric tradition is strong. So we have always in psychology been able to count and kind of, you know, figure out things based on averages and, and things like that. And some of this, I'm, I'm assuming, will be, uh, you know, is relevant to how you understand and can map your own culture. What are you seeing in that field in terms of creative new approaches to to model or understand or map kind of cultural variance in a way that is actionable for an executive? Like if if I was the head of, you know, take any any Fortune 50, you know, and this, you know, my 300,000 employees, I want to understand what are their different cultures and how can I activate it and how can I avoid, you know, big, big problems. Are there any tools that scales to a company that way where you can not just map uh, people's skills, but actually map their cultural repertoires? Mm -hmm. There are, there, there's a number of tools that are out there, you know, available that assess values much like ours would, that can be used within organizations. To understand, you know, what are the values of the associates, and then to what extent do they sort of align or not, depending on you know what the co company wants to do and how they want to compete with the culture. That's, I think, going to be a really interesting approach that companies use going forward. Assessing cultural values, I, I think that the tripwire that a lot of organizations will have is that sometimes you don't. Need don't need everyone to necessarily espouse certain values 
but you do need them to have certain behaviors and the time that they are working for your um, organization. And, and in the conversations I'm having with companies now, it's, it's really parsing that difference. To what extent do I need to truly value, um, I'll use an example, um, egalitarianism, where everyone is totally equal, everybody's on equal footing, anyone can talk to anyone about anything, and you can bypass seniority, and you know, you know, knowledge flows everywhere and in every direction without any chain of command. Okay, I might, and this is just as a, a kind of a little example, I might truly value structure and hierarchy, but when I'm working within my organization, I need to espouse the value or the, the behaviors of someone who's comfortable with, with that. So it's kind of that toggle. Do we really want people who all have the same values? Because then then that starts to get into group thinking, that's scary. Or do we need individuals who will um, have the same values that we believe are in order for our effective. Hmm. And I think we're going to start parsing those out and really better understanding. I'd be very concerned if companies start assessing for values. In other words, we need full alignment. That just, to me, that's bad things will happen. But um, they do need the behaviors on the things for which they're competing. They need those behaviors. But that's going to yeah, be what I meant when I said the strategy, the, you know, it's going to be a broader strategic conversation about how we Fantastic. Well, I thank you so much for sharing that. It was, uh, I think it's going to be a, a, an interesting and evolving topic going forward. doesn't seem like there's a straightforward strategic answer that's going to be set in stone. It's uh, interesting how this will conversation will evolve. It will definitely be a function of the way an organization and how they compete in the different regions of the world where they are that it'll start to unfold depending on strategy. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You have just listened to episode 124 of the Futurized podcast with host Trondarne Unheim, futurist and author. If you are interested in Trond's products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of Tron's books, such as Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership from Below. If you are interested in all of Tron's projects, check out his website, trondundheim.com, which has links to his other podcasts as well as his public appearances. In this conversation, we talked about how to be culturally agile as we are already living in a hybrid future of work. My takeaway is that being a successful global professional is not easy. You have to master self-management, including tolerance and resilience, and you need to be competent at building relationships. You need to manage cultural adaptation to new realities around you. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 113, Tech in Tomorrow's Learning Organizations, episode 94, Workforce, Humanity and Future Tech, or episode 66, The Serendipity of Social Innovation. Here's a clip from Michael Leckie from uh, my interview with him called Tech in Tomorrow's Learning Organizations. Remote work is is fascinating. And I think that one of the things that we need to be able to do is understand sometimes we can have jobs at all levels be remote 
but we have to have remote relationships too. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. You can find Yegi at yegi.org. That's Y-E-G-I-I. The Futurized team consists of podcast host and sound technician Trond Arne Unheim, videographer Raoul Edward D. Trivithan, and podcast marketer Naheen Israfil Hussein. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.